If you've ever worked with a student who had trouble engaging in an assessment that you were giving them and you felt, where do I even start? What should I target in therapy? You're going to want to listen to this entire episode. We're unpacking such great information today with Carrie Ebert. She is a speech language pathologist. She is a presenter and she has an autistic son. And she shares with us some amazing foundational skills that we should target with our emerging communicators. She also talks about some phrases or some words that we should avoid when we're talking to parents. So if red flags for autism is something you've said in the past or unwanted behaviors, you're going to want to tune in and hear about some parent-friendly language that she shares with us. So much great information here. Love talking with Carrie. Felt like I was talking with an old friend and I could talk with her all day. Make sure that you tune in. This is a great one. You don't want to miss it. Let's get started. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. All right. Thanks for joining us on episode six of the Autism Outreach Podcast. My name is Rose Griffin. I'm here to help you learn strategies you can use in your therapy sessions tomorrow to help your students with autism. And today we have Carrie Ebert with us. I'm super excited. Thanks for joining us, Carrie. It's so nice to virtually meet you. Yes, it's nice to finally meet you as well. I feel like we're old friends. <laughs> yes, I, I feel like we go way back. That's the reason I started the podcast, so I could talk to all my friends in real life, kind of. But I'm super excited. We've done some collabs on Instagram, and I know we have a lot in common. Can you tell us a little bit? I know you kind of have a story. You've been a speech therapist for a while, and just tell us a little bit about yourself. Great. Yes, my name is Carrie Ebert. I'm a pediatric SLP in the Kansas City, Missouri area. I am a professional speaker, and before the pandemic, I was traveling all around the country, pretty much in a different city every week doing continuing education seminars. have not traveled since March of 2020 because of the pandemic. So it's been crazy. I have a son who is 16 and Aaron has autism. He has apraxia, sensory processing disorder, throw a little anxiety in there. So I have been living and breathing autism for the past 16 years. And then also I've been an SLP, you know, for over 20 years. So yeah, I'm an apraxia specialist, an autism specialist, and I'm an early intervention specialist. Birth to three is my passion. Wow, that's awesome. That's so cool. Because I actually tend to work with just my career. I've been in practice about 20 years. And so I really have specialized in working with students with autism. And it seems that just over the years, I've always kind of worked with older students. So now that I have my own private practice, I am seeing a couple clients here and there, and they're all younger, like the age group you're kind of, actually three Uh is actually the youngest, Uh but it's kind of fun because I just don't see kids that age anymore. So it's definitely, even though I have three kids of my own that are little, it's definitely a different skill set to work with kids of that age group. So it is for sure. (laughs) Yes, it definitely is. So today I'm excited because you always have really great stuff on your Instagram. If you're not following her over on Instagram, make sure to, because you just have really great posts. I oftentimes put them in my stories and it's just really great information, whether it's advice for parents or just information about milestones. I always love everything you share. So 
Today, we're going to be talking about supporting acquisition of five key foundational skills in toddlers with autism or suspected autism. And so I guess one of the big questions is, how do we respond when a parent's primary concern is that their child isn't talking yet? I know that's very, very concerning for a lot of parents. And so, you know, what do we do? What do we do then? Right, right. I think, you know, as speech-language pathologists uh, working, you know, with very young children, that's usually the reason the referral gets made is, oh, my little guy isn't talking yet. He's not talking. I just want you to teach him to talk, Miss Carrie, you know, and so that seems to be the most common thing. And for those of us who have worked in early intervention for a long time, you know, I, I always say this, yeah, I'm concerned that your child isn't talking as well, but I will tell you that there are a lot of other things that I'm more concerned about. And it's usually that the child is missing these key foundation skills that actually support those other higher level skills. And so I recently wrote a book and it's called the learning to learn program. And it just came out in December and we have almost sold out of our first 500 books. We're ready to reorder. I did my husband, I say we, because my husband and I, we run our company, we sit in our office in our basement of our home and (laughs) write incessantly since we're not traveling. And so this whole program, it's a book, you know, a manual, and then it has an assessment protocol. And it really kind of outlines the five foundation skills. And so I would just love to talk to you a little bit about those. Yeah. Tell me, tell me, hold it up again. I I can see Carrie, you guys can't, we're not doing video yet. We'll get there. So it's called the Learning to Learn Program and Assessment and Therapy Strategies for Early Intervention Providers Serving Young Children with Autism Spectrum Disorder, Suspected Autism, and Social Communication Delays. One of the things that I talk about in the intro is a lot of times in early intervention, these little kiddos may not have a diagnosis yet. And so I refer to them oftentimes as struggling learners. So that's just kind of a term that I've been using. And I find that parents, grandparents, caregivers seem, seem to be pretty receptive to that. Yes. It's not a negative term per se. And right. I've had, you know, I, I, I sometimes have, you know, parents say, that's exactly what he is. He's struggling. He's a yes. struggling learner. And right. I just find as an early intervention provider that a lot of these kids are struggling learning how to learn, you know, you know, we don't know what they know as SLPs. Isn't that one of our issues is gosh, you know, I can't really give them the PLS or, you know, one of these language tests. And so his scores are so low, but we don't know if those scores are even accurate because we don't know what the child knows because he doesn't demonstrate his or her knowledge. And so I really believe that we have to start at the beginning, at the foundation, kind of, you know, like when you build a house, you got to have a solid foundation on what you build. If we start with talking, the problem is we can get, you know, a a lot of young children with autism may have echolalia. So, oh, they're talking. Great. But is it meaningful? Is it purposeful? What, you know, is it? We we don't know. You know, we know that echolalia is, uh, can be a bridge to, you know, uh, self-directed speech. But I think it's just very important that we help families and caregivers understand the foundation before we start working on talking, which is everybody's primary concern. Yeah, I love that because I do a lot of talking about learning. I call it learning readiness skills. So I'm excited to hear what you have to say because I do think as speech therapists, it's exactly right. And I think we're probably maybe using different tools, but I know that as especially as a school-based therapist, it's like we meet a student, they're not going to get a standardized score on a standardized test. I'm a BCBA, so I might know about some other assessments like the VBMAP that maybe not a lot of speech therapists might know about. Or even if you gave the functional communication profile, it's so 
big and it's really just so subjective. You know, it's like we need to hone in on how can we help the students get building block to know how to learn farther. And I think as a young therapist, that was really hard for me. It's like, okay, I know this student, like you said, is a struggling learner, right? They're they're an emergent communicator. I know they want to communicate, right? But maybe they're using their behavior and pulling mom or dad and doing all those different things. And I think it's so hard because I had a great graduate program, but I did not learn how to really... I did not feel prepared to know how to plan for that type of student. So I'm super excited for you to get into these five foundational skills. Like, where do we start, Carrie? Tell us all about it. Okay. Well, I'm super excited. So I actually created the assessment part of this program probably, I don't even know, eight, 10 years ago when I had a private clinic and I was getting these kids coming in and I had a lot of, oh, like graduate clinicians who I was supervising and then I was getting CFYs and I felt like we needed a tool. You know, it's an informal assessment, but I felt like we needed to be able to show. I used to do a lot of, um, I call them Lego groups, language enrichment group opportunities. And I did those in the summer and me and my graduate students, we had Lego groups in the morning, we had them in the afternoon. And I felt like we all needed a way to kind of track, you know, you know, what are their, what's their baseline? We needed to prove to parents who were paying out of pocket for these language enrichment groups that, you know, they, they, they were making some progress. So I started creating, and I've had a dozen different versions, you know, of this assessment. And when the pandemic hit, I always say there is a silver lining to some things. Normally when I'm traveling so much, I don't have time to sit down and write and research. Well, I have had like nine months to just sit at this computer and I used it very, very wisely, I think, and did finish all the research. And so I will just kind of go through the five foundation skills Great. if you're good with that. Yeah, I'd love to hear about it. All right. Awesome. So in the assessment, what I what I do is because I'm a parent of an autistic child, I think maybe I'm a little more sensitive to certain terms, maybe than than I would be if I was, you know, a therapist and not a parent. But some of the things that I I actually have a section in my new book where I talk about using language that is, I don't know, that we need to be aware, like even saying something like, oh, he has red flags for autism. I have such a problem with the term red flags because that term indicates there's something alarmingly wrong. And, um, you know, the, the neurodiversity movement says, look, just because you're wired differently doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you. And so trying to not use those terms Another thing is unwanted behaviors. That's been a big one. I sat in so many IEP meetings with my son and I had, you know, therapists say, oh, we need to extinguish his unwanted behaviors. From the parent's perspective, what I hear is, you know, you don't, you know, my son is unwanted. Like it's just right. a term. And so challenging behaviors is like a term that I use, you know, and I have a little I say behavioral one. barriers. What do you, oh, what do you think you of that term? There you go. Is that okay? I am fine with that. It's just okay. unwanted. That yeah, term. I'm so glad you're talking about this because I just had two IEP. I am a school-based therapist three days a week. I don't uh-huh. know if everybody knows that, but you know, so I always do wonder, does the parent like me? Am I saying the right things? Even doing this for almost 20 years and having, uh-huh. you know, 15,000 Instagram uh-huh. followers and doing all these webinars, I still want all the parents to know that I am doing the very best for their students. So I think we all do. And I feel like, especially when you're starting out or if you're new to working with students, you know, who have autism, it's kind of hard to know. So I, you know, and I love the name autism outreach and really one of the reasons I named it that is because I do want to have a lot of parents on, especially because you're a parent and a professional to give that perspective, because I feel like as speech therapists, when we're sitting on the other side of the table, we're kind of always kind of wincing and thinking like, am I doing, you know, is that, 
okay to say? So yeah. all these things, because I know you were going to talk about a couple things that, you know, maybe um, we should avoid when we're talking to parents. So yeah, what right. other things? So red flags. Okay. Right. Red flags. Yeah, we could have probably done a whole episode just on some <laughs> of the terms that I'm not a fan of, you know, right. high functioning and low functioning, that not okay with those terms. We probably right. don't have a lot of time to go into this. But another thing that, and the reason I guess I brought up the, the whole semantics thing is in the assessment, instead of talking about like, because each section has developmental strengths. And then for a long time, I talked about what are the needs of the child, you know, so strengths and needs. And I've been following a lot of autistic adults on social media, really reading about the neurodiversity movement. And what I did in this assessment is I actually call them developmental differences. So they're Mm. different. It doesn't even mean they're always need to be changed or there maybe isn't always something to fix. But for us as professionals and then, you know, parents and educators is understanding the differences. Now with very young children, we're talking about, you know, toddlers, these differences, if they're interfering with acquisition of these five foundation skills, we need to address them, right? But the point is that they can have differences and we don't necessarily need to change all of them. You know, this isn't about trying to make a child less autistic or make them more neurotypical. Right. Uh, It's about accepting the child for who he or she is, but also helping that child learn how to learn from and engage with the important people in his or her life. And that's what my whole program is about. It's about relationship-based yeah. learning. It is about child-directed mm-hmm. strategies. It's not about stopping them from stimming or, you know, right. making them, you know, uh, teaching to the test, helping them be able to point to 10 objects mm-hmm. on command. As a, as a mom, it's really for me, and gosh, I, I can just ramble all day. So <laughs> no, this is good. I like it. But PI is my favorite acronym. And anybody who's ever heard me present, I talk about PI. PI stands for participation, independence, and engagement. And whenever I write a therapy goal, I always want to make sure that that goal is designed to increase one or more aspect of PI. So as long as the goal increases either the child's participation, independence, or engagement in their daily routines or interactions with other people, then we are writing functional goals and outcomes. When I, what I have a problem with is writing goals to the test, you know, is, right. um, you know, making sure the child can do X, Y, and Z from a test. And you're like, but how does that apply to real life? You know, what is Yeah. That- and I think that viewpoint, I absolutely agree. And I always talk about, you know, we have to make sure that we're generalizing these skills. Uh-huh. How is it embedded across a learner's day? And I always say my biggest job as a speech therapist is not, is actually not even therapy. Sometimes my biggest job is making sure that I have a rapport number one with this student, but number two with the entire team, yes. including parents, because because that's what's so important. If I can make sure I have that really robust relationship with everybody else, because I always say speech therapy doesn't, it's not what happens in the room stays in the room. What Where the real magic happens is when that stuff, that communication is taking place with other people besides the speech therapist outside of the therapy room. And I think sometimes, especially for new therapists, I guess I'm just talking about my personal experience, uh-huh. but I remember working in, because I am a BCBA, so it's more of an ABA type program. I was a speech therapist. And I remember had a special education director asking me why I was working on a particular program. I think it was like an answering how question or answering why. I mean, it was my second year as a speech therapist. I was working with students with very intense, unsafe problem behavior. Uh And I just, I was not sure how to be quite honest here. I was not sure how to answer that question. It made me very sweaty and anxious. But I think that having that scope and sequence of like, how is this goal? I love the pie. That's amazing. How is this goal serving this child? Because you're working with younger students and I work with, tend to work with older students and they 
always think to myself, how is this functional for right. the student? And I loved how you said, you know, with their favorite adults or who's in their environment, because yeah. that's what's so very important. So kind of reflecting on our goal setting, you know, I can always refine my goal setting too. And thinking like, how is this serving the student to be more independent? Right. I think that's a great point. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So before we run out of time, let me go through <laughs> five foundation skills. The first one is nonverbal imitation. And in the manual, you know, I go through and it's an evidence-based program. So, you know, I kind of walk through, you know, how critical nonverbal imitation is. So this is what's so funny is, oh, I just want you to teach him to talk. And I say, oh, actually, we're going to start with nonverbal imitation. And so the reason, you know, that I talk about nonverbal imitation first is because it's one of the best ways to build the second learning to learn behavior, which is joint attention. And so, you know, that nonverbal imitation is a way to set the stage for kind of turn taking, you know, so I am a big believer in contingent imitation, where I coach the caregivers and the families to imitate what the child does. So then the child, you know, so we imitate the child. And then hopefully we can get that turn taking the child imitates us, we imitate the child, we go back and forth. And in the book, one of the things that I'm, I was very excited to find research on the nonverbal imitation is to really focus on, you know, there's two, oh, imitative learning is it can build, we can use it for learning purposes, but we can also use it to build, you know, for social purposes for building social skills. So what I, because I'm a big believer in relationship-based learning, I did a post not too long ago on was true confessions. And I said, I'm a pediatric SLP, but my son has had very little direct therapy because I am all about the relationship. And so my big thing is coaching the caregiver, coaching the daycare provider, the parent, the grandparent. And so, you know, and, and really embedding intervention into daily routines, into bath time, into meal time, into play time, into running errands time. You know, that's my whole push for coaching and so I'm a huge believer in that, in that relationship-based learning. And so it, in the book, you know, I talk a lot about reciprocal imitation training, which is really designed to facilitate the social component of imitation. So I want the child to not do something, you know, because I told him to do it. I want him to do it because he wants to engage with me, because he wants to interact with right. me. So we kind of go through, you know, there's a time and a place for discrete trial training, and then there's a time and a place for that reciprocal imitation. Right. No, I... I love that idea. And I did see that post and I was like, that's very interesting. Yeah. I thought that was very yeah. cool. Yeah. That was interesting. Yeah. I think that probably surprised some people, but oh, I, I, I love it does because yeah. people sometimes come to me because they want me to somehow say you need more therapy. I'm not actually a big believer in a lot of therapy. Right. I'm a big believer in using skilled professionals for coaching on specific strategies. You know, if I have an issue, like when I had, I don't know, my son couldn't, he couldn't figure out how to cut with scissors. And so I had my OT colleague come and do a consult and give us some strategies, like the best strategy she ever gave me. I'm like, oh my gosh, why didn't, why don't, why doesn't everybody know this is the file folder strategy where you put a file folder under your arm and it stabilizes the shoulder because my son kept, you know, turning oh, it, you know, sure. So things like that, for me, I'm all about strategy. I want to know what strategies to use, Rose. I want to know what strategies does the PT use to, you know, when the child is W sitting. I just want the strategies. And that's what I try to share in my posts. I get a lot of people asking me, oh my gosh, your social media team. I'm like, yeah, there's no social media team. I spend <laughs> 60 to 90 minutes every day creating my post. And well, I mean, it's good because I, I, I share a lot of your posts on my social media. I'm trying to work on making more shareable posts just 
FYI, everybody. But no, I do love that. And I, I do love that idea because I do think that's where, and I, I knew we were going to get along because I also talk about this where, you know, my whole idea is, you know, I might just use a different term, but generalization is, you know, I may be working on something, but making sure, you know, a paraprofessional understands what the vision is for a goal. Because a lot of times paraprofessionals might be working really intently with our students and maybe the teacher just hasn't had time to go through the IEP goals. And I always make sure that I do that to make sure that everybody's feeling very invested and understands kind of that scope and sequence, you know, for what's going on with the students. So that's really great. I love that idea about imitation. Okay. So yeah, what so other foundation skills? is the first foundation skill. The second foundation skill is joint attention. And we all know that if a child isn't attending to you, and I'm not, I don't, I mean, I did a post, a very, I don't know if I want to say controversial. Some of my posts are kind of controversial, I think. But it was, you know, I said, I don't write goals for eye contact. Why I don't write, why we shouldn't write goals for eye contact. My son does not have great eye contact. He's 16 years old, but I'm telling you, he is engaged. He has great joint attention. He focuses, he attends, but the, the, the eye contact is very hard for autistic individuals. So, you know, one of the things I talk about in joint attention and when we talk about is how do you know if the child is paying attention to you is I do work on with these very young children, just getting them to visually check in, you know, and that's how I write goals. So, you know, I always give this example, like when my son was in early childhood and it was circle time and they were reading a story, my son would need a fidget in his hand and he would look away, but that's the only way he could process. He can either look at you he can listen to you. He can't do both very well. So if you make him look at you, then you better not expect him to be comprehending anything. So we got it, you know, that where he could look away and he would fidget with his toy. Now, when should Aaron, my son, visually check in with you? Well, if you call his name, Aaron, he should at least glance in the general. And that's how the teacher would know. Or if she asked a question, what color's the dog? Let's say you're reading a book about a dog. Shouldn't he probably look at the book then? So that's how you can know if a child who doesn't have great eye contact is paying attention or not. And right. so, you know, but joint attention in very young children is really a top best by following the child's lead. If the child is interested in lining up cars, everybody wants to get him to stop lining up cars. I'm like, why Why are you trying to stop that? That is something he's engaged in. I'm going to line up my cars. Parallel play is something. I could talk all day about parallel play. I think as therapists, we forget to do parallel play. We want them, We want to start engaging with the child. Well, I'll tell you right, right now, most autistic kiddos don't want you in their business, okay? Because you're yeah. going to start messing up their cars. You're going to try to rearrange their cars. And so instead, I parallel play. And I'm going to get my own cars. I'm not going to touch your cars and I'm going to see how close you'll let me get to you and when you run the other way that means I'm too close and I'm going to respect that I'm going to back up a little bit and I'm going to coach caregivers to parallel play and we may spend weeks in parallel play but I need the child to be willing to want to be in the same vicinity with me but what do we do as therapists child's playing with trains we come up and go oh let me take this train and run it across the track and the kid runs the other way or cries or throws the train at your head and then we go oh he's non-compliant oh he won't pay you know he won't hit his poor joint attention we have to respect oh see i get emotional respect is so important right that we respect the child and the child we always say oh their play isn't purposeful well it is to them I mean, right. our job is to observe what is it about this that is so enticing? You know, we got we have to understand their sensory systems. And so the third learning to learn behavior is sensory processing and self-regulation. I need a child to be well-regulated. If you have a dysregulated child, there is nothing you're going to do that's going to make a difference for development. And so getting a child in a ready state for learning, that's my favorite term. So mm. I always talk about if this is a ready state for learning, some of our kids are over-responsive, right? They're way up here. And some of our kids are under-responsive. 
responsive and they're way down here. And then you have your sensory seekers and they're all over the place. You know, they just can't even focus. So what are we going to do? Because we have to have strategies to get the child who's over responsive here. We have to get the under responsive child here. So it's so important that we take as many, every discipline needs to take as many sensory courses as they possibly can. I mean, I am like an OT wannabe. I'll tell you that. I mean, you're, you're like dually licensed as a BCBA and an SLP. If I were ever to get dually licensed, I'm like the whole OT thing, the whole, you know, activities of daily living and the sensory processing component. I will just tell you all the things every Sunday on social media, I post Sunday a day and it's, let's talk about autism. And I just always share details from, you know, what my son has taught me the past week about autism. And I have posted so much about sensory this past year because he is getting so regulated and he when you have a regulated nervous system you can better tolerate change and you can do you can tolerate new experiences you enjoy new experiences my son is like I don't even know how to tell you guys he is just a different child and it's because he is finally we've spent 16 years trying to regulate his nervous system and he is so well regulated like we don't he used to use a checklist you can and my followers who've been following me for a long time know that he for like seven years has religiously used a checklist every day for things like put on deodorant. You know what I mean? Like all of right. those things, his, his sure. things that have to be done. About a month and a half, two months ago, he came to me and said, mom, I just don't think I need this anymore. And I was like, what in the, I mean, and he does every day, he does all of his stuff and he doesn't need a checklist. My husband and I are like, this is on. <laughs> real and yeah. the craziness with the pandemic you know he was in school and then he was not in school and now he's hybrid going two days a week to school and he's tolerating I mean a, a year or two ago this would have never been okay you know all of this he's so much more flexible so I will just say that you need to have a best friend who's an OT I mean right. I, I can't reiterate enough you need to take every course you can you need to read you can't you know this isn't you know a video but I mean my bookshelf I have an entire shelf that is all just sensory books I mean I research sensory and the more I understand sensory the more I understand my son the more I understand the behaviors because we know as SLPs that all behavior is communication right every single behavior so if you approach a child and he runs the other way there's something about that interaction that he was opposed to, you know, and so we need to be able to identify what that is. So in the book, I give tons of strategies and that sensory chapter, chapter three is probably my absolute favorite because I give scenarios. What do you do? How, you know, if the child doesn't like haircuts, you know, what do you do? You know, so I give all these different scenarios because I live it every day of my life. I have strategies, you know, coming out my ears for sensory because I've had to problem solve every single one of them. And yeah, I love those real life examples you have. And what's so interesting, we had Jesse Ginsburg on a couple episodes ago and she talked exactly about what you're talking about. And I think she owns a like a multidisciplinary clinic in mm. California. So I know that she does a lot of work with probably an OT, I'm imagining, sure. but she was talking about the exact same thing. Yeah. So that's so interesting. Yeah, that you're sharing that. Okay, yeah, amazing. Cool. Yeah, she's my new friend, you know, on social media. <laughs> right. Friend. We found each other and I'm like, I think we're the same person. I mean, yeah. like her post, I'm like, I swear I could have written that, you know, and she yeah. and I have been communicating. So, I mean, I'm old enough to be her mom probably, but I'm, <laughs> like, yeah, that's amazing though. I love that. That's awesome. So which, which strategy was that? What number are we on number now? Three. So number three. Okay. Four is purposeful play. And 
this is where some people, especially autistic adults, they hate that. Like, why are their play is purposeful? You need to just understand it. But again, my program is for very young children who are developing play. And so if their play, you know, there are some very young children who they are stuck in the oral exploration phase, right? So they're three years old, two and a half years old, and all they do is they're still in, in random and exploratory play. I'm sorry, but that's going to interfere with your ability to learn and develop. So, you know, even though I am not going to stop a child from children who like to line things up. I mean, I'm going to try to understand what it is about that behavior that that is so fascinating to them. And I talk about how to do that in, in my in my program. But I still think children need to have some purposeful play skills. They need to be able to go to preschool. They need independent play skills. Do they not? They need to not just stand in a corner and stim for two hours. If they need to stim, we're going to figure out what can we how can we give them some of that input through something more purposeful, something more socially acceptable like play, you know, so I'm very much looking at where they're at in their development. And we talk about the different types of play. Um, my next book, because I just <laughs> writing for, will be on preserving play in the in the digital age, because I feel like play skills in general are just disappearing, even in our neurotypical kids, excessive screen time, a limited outdoor play. And we're seeing that we get kids who don't even know what to do with wooden blocks. You know, it is. Oh, it's definitely changing. I do. Though, I actually have gone to the other side and I am on TikTok. <laughs> Okay, that was my COVID. I yes, did do some really, I mean, I guess I started a, a podcast during oh. the pandemic. Yay for me. But I also did start, I'm over there at ABA Speech on TikTok. But I have, I will say with TikTok, we have a family account and it is very interesting to see, like when I was younger with my cousins, we would make like dance videos up, you know, and show our parents or dance routines. And my kids are doing those types of things, which it is very creative, but it definitely is tech savvy. So it is different. But it is we our kids are super into sports too. But but I understand what you're saying because it's just different. You guys, what you're doing is joint media engagement. JME. That's one of my favorite acronyms. And in my technology seminar, we talk about joint media engagement. If you are doing something together as a family, that there is nothing wrong with screen time in and of itself is not inherently bad. This is a totally different podcast episode. But the point is, if you're doing it jointly, right? There is right. nothing wrong with that. I've created I think 55 decks of boom cards during the pandemic because we. Have have to have a way to get repetitive speech in very young children if they have a praxia, right? Right, so, right. I'm not saying all technology is bad. I'm saying children can't spend eight hours a day in front of a screen and then we wonder, oh gee, I wonder why he's not developing, right? You can't develop. Their um, technological know-how is one type of intelligence, but very young children also need to develop functional communication skills, gross motor skills, fine motor skills. They need to have sensory experiences, right? Those things are very hard to develop sitting in front of a screen. So all we're talking about, you know, I talk about is balance. There needs to be this healthy balance. Yes, we live in the digital age, but young children with developing brains and bodies still need real, true play, screen-free play. They need to engage their whole bodies, you know, in, in real Yeah. Play. I think we just have to set that up as parents before we popped on here to do the podcast. I made my kids take a walk with me outside. Uh -huh. It's Ohio and it's cold, but, you know, they were like, oh, this was fun. You know, it's just like, there's definitely some whining before we go. And then, you know. <laughs> good once you do it. Yes. So real quickly, I know we need to finish up. The fifth foundation skill then is early language development. And it's not about speech. It's about language, right? Language first. And one of my big things in that chapter is AAC, augmentative and alternative communication should not be a last resort. These children, every human being 
needs and deserves a way to communicate. I just did a consult with a provider out in New Jersey and the child is seven and a half and still has no AAC. And I'm just, I I just, I can't, it makes me want to cry, Rose, because human beings need a way to communicate. And if they don't, then their behaviors will be their communication, right? The hitting, the biting, the scratching, the screaming, that is communication. Every bit of that is communicative. So for me, and my fifth chapter in the book is the most in-depth and it was it was painful to write because it was so you know language is huge and I have a whole section on echolalia and it's not something we should try to eliminate echolalia is a building block and so I have great information from Marge Blanc and her wonderful book on echolalia so anyways I just think that you know if we can as providers really help families and caregivers understand that those five foundation skills come first and then we can build higher level skills on top of that. This is the foundation, right? This is the the build, these are the building blocks. And then everything else builds on top of that. Absolutely. Can you sum up those? It's such great information. I love it. Like I need so this the book. Five, five learning to learn behaviors, the five foundation skills. The first one is nonverbal imitation. The second one is joint attention. The third one is self-regulation. The fourth is purposeful play. If you don't like the word purposeful, meaningful, do you know what I mean? It's just something that it's something that's engaging their time and they need to be learning through play, right? They actually need to be learning something through play. And um, the fifth one is uh, early language development. So those yeah. are kind of those, those foundation skills. I love it. It's great information because it's, this is not stuff that you're maybe going to learn in a book. You know, it's information that you've acquired, you know, applying everything that we've learned in school to your clinical practice and obviously your experience as a parent. So, oh my gosh, such great information. So I always ask people, what is the most important piece of advice that you would want to pass along to another professional or parent about working with students with autism? What is the one thing that you would, you know, would if you could highlight one thing, what would it? Yeah, I think my one thing would be um, that your your primary emphasis should be on connecting with the child. You need to build that relationship because once, here's what I would say is when interacting with you becomes a preferred activity for the child, that is when the magic starts to happen. But if the child sees you and hides under the table, cries, fusses, turns away from you, avoids interacting with you, you're pressuring the child too much. I believe in a low pressure approach. And I know I'm giving you like six things, but the other main thing is stop talking so much. Most yes. kids have a struggle with auditory processing. And the more we talk, use more visual cues, use more gestures, more body language, Sound effects can be enticing, but the blah, 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 blah. They just are going to tune you out. So less language, focus on relationships, connect with the child, and don't try to change the child. Right. The child is, is, is not, the goal is not to make them more neurotypical, right? The right. Goal is to seek to understand the child. And then right. what we do is change our behaviors. We don't, right. I'm not, not there to try to change the child, right? So, yeah, I really love that just because, you know, I think sometimes as speech therapists, it, when I was a younger speech therapist, I felt like for some reason, I didn't, I don't know if I was trained that way, but it's like every moment doesn't have to be a language enriched no. moment. And I always said that, you know, like, and I call it maybe pairing. So I might have some different yeah. terms, right? The BCBA in me, but you know, I'm building rapport. I've been calling it building therapeutic rapport with my students. And it's just kind of like, just you said, being in their space and I, you have something, I have something, you know, or it's just, I think sometimes for speech therapists, especially 
especially just my own experience as a younger therapist, it's hard. You maybe feel like you're not doing anything in that moment. So it's like, I always train on that too and say it's like every moment doesn't have to be this language enriched moment because... You can focus on the nonverbal language. See, right. Every interaction is. And that's what I talk about in the in the chapter on early language development. Every interaction, you're building language, but it doesn't always have to be verbal, right? Focus on the nonverbal language that we all communicate. What was that study they did like at UCLA that said like 80% um. of Communication is nonverbal. I mean, right. how much of communication? And that's what so many autistic individuals are missing out on is the nonverbal, the pragmatics. Right. The that's the language I want to focus on when I'm getting, because here's what I'll tell you about the really little, the little ones, okay, is you, the child has to let you into his world. Okay, before you're going to pull them into yours. Okay, so you he, you have to find a way to uh, connect with the child. And that's what child directive strategies are all about. And that is my whole emphasis in my new book, The Learning Tool Improvement. Well, I just love it. Those are great ideas. I mean, really wonderful. I loved everything you had to say today. So I'm so happy that you joined us. Where can people find you like on uh, social media or your website? Let us know. Yeah. So Carrie Ebert Seminars, and my name is C-A-R-I, like I, my mom had to give me a crazy first name spelling, right? So C-A-R-I, my last name is Ebert, E-B as in boy, E-R-T. So CarrieEbertSeminars.com is my website. Carrie Ebert Seminars is my handle on Facebook. And Carrie Ebert Seminars is my handle on Instagram. So those are the places and I do daily posts on Instagram and Facebook. Do it every morning, uh, sometime between 6.30 and 7 a.m. Central Time. I'm an early riser, so I get up and uh, create my post about 5 a.m. every day. And I do a post every day. And people sometimes, I don't know, I love it. It invigorates me because it forces me to dig. What am I going to post about today? You know, and I pick a topic and then I dig through all my research and I find, you know, something that I think is worthy of posting. And so well, that's I really awesome. Yes, I love it. Your posts are very shareable, great information. And I'm just so glad that you could come on today. Everybody, make sure to check the show notes for resources that we discussed today. Um, I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you haven't done so already, make sure to hit subscribe and write a review and remember to keep things fun and functional and see you next time. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.